Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Because I knew we'd be ending our program with one of my very favorite Bach cantatas featuring the brilliant young singers at Don Upshaw's opera program at Bard College, I thought, why not make this into sort of a whole celebration of youth? So we actually invited three uh, young, brilliant wind soloists to play the three parts of Michael Torkey's brand new concertino. Uh, and then we wanted to start with a, another classical work. So I picked one of my absolute favorite all-time classics, Mozart's penultimate symphony, the Symphony Number no. Forty in G Minor, the the famous da da dum da da dum da 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 dum da da dum da da dum da da dum dum, and in the case of this program, program order was kind of a question. I mean, I think normally one would would end with the Mozart Symphony, but because the Bach Cantata didn't only involve these brilliant young singers, but also involved a whole wonderful youth chorale as well from Schenectady County Community College, uh, I thought it would be wonderful to end with the Bach Cantata, and so we decided to start with the Mozart and then put the Torquey in the middle right after the intermission. So the first half was comprised entirely of this beautiful, great Mozart symphony. Uh, it's one of Mozart's not only most magical works, but it's also one of the works that it, it we're the most puzzled about why and for what purpose he wrote it. In 1788, over a span of a, a very short span of time, Mozart completed his last three incredible symphonies, the symphony number 39, 40, and then finally the, the last symphony, the great C major so-called Jupiter Symphony. And for many, many years, for practically a century and a half, uh, it was thought that, that Mozart had just written these three symphonies from an inner compulsion. There was no really clear indication that the pieces had been performed in Mozart's lifetime. After all, the pieces were written less than three years before his death, uh, his untimely death. So it was often said that you know these were his most personal pieces because they obviously were just written because he felt an inner urge to write them. Closer scholarly study has shown that it's it's very likely that at least the G minor symphony, if not all three of them, were in fact performed during Mozart's lifetime. Uh, and frankly, it was interesting having Michael Torkey with us for this concert weekend. Uh, we talked a lot about whether composers ever really write pieces purely because they just want to write them. It's a much stronger impetus, and particularly in Mozart's time, when, when creating music, when composing was really considered more of an artisan sort of activity as opposed to just pure art, genius, inspirational kind of thing. I mean, Mozart was generally trying to make Make a living. And so it's highly unlikely that he would have written three major pieces without feeling fairly secure that, that there would be performances coming up or that he would arrange performances. And in fact, one of the reasons that it's thought that the 40th Symphony was performed during Mozart's lifetime 
is that he actually adapted the piece, and it was originally written without any clarinets, and uh, at a certain point shortly there after, after putting the piece out, he then created a second version in which he added clarinets. It's thought very likely that there was a performance or a planned performance, and that it was going to feature some very fine clarinetists, so he created a clarinet part. Uh, so we, we did the version with clarinets, the, the more commonly performed version, and it's a, it's a very unusual work in Mozart's oeuvre. You know, as, as Mozart got older, most of his symphonies took on a, a very sort of public kind of sensibility, much like Haydn's great late 12 to 20 symphonies. You know, Haydn wrote so many symphonies, at least 104 numbered ones, plus many others. And those last great symphonies, the so-called London symphonies, are very um, broad and big and public in utterance in that they have slow, dramatic introductions, they have trumpets and drums, uh, they have fabulous, exciting finales, and they're obviously written with a, a very large public audience in mind. His earlier symphonies were really written more for the Esterhazy family, this noble family, and, and for more intimate gatherings, and, and they were, frankly, much more experimental than his late symphonies. A similar thing seems to happen with Mozart's 41 symphonies. His later symphonies become much more public utterances, much grander with trumpets and drums and with four really big different kinds of movements. But this symphony, interestingly, in both versions, doesn't have any trumpets or drums. It doesn't have any of that kind of military, triumphant sound to it. It is a very strangely intimate work for a late Mozart symphony that obviously was designed to be played for a broad public. Uh, It has that, that wonderful compact, compressed first movement with that that uh, very intense which permeates the movement almost in a way as a precursor to the way Beethoven uses that that permeates the entire first movement of, of his fifth symphony. And I wonder sort of in the back of my mind whether Beethoven was looking a little bit to Mozart and the intensity and the, the strong motific use of this one idea when he sat down to, to write his fifth symphony. The work is, of course, in four movements, standard symphony style, with that great, very intense first movement, uh, molto allegro, and, and beautiful contrasting material. But again, a very compressed, intense, hyperdramatic first movement. Uh, I should mention that this symphony was much beloved by the uh, by the Romantic composers. They thought it was the most extraordinarily expressive of all of Mozart's symphonies, and uh, really loved it greatly. Uh, we tend to play it you know, a little bit more cleanly and classically, because that's obviously the style in which it, it was composed. Uh, but it is a very dramatic and very compressed movement without a, a broad introduction. So, so he thrusts us immediately into the drama of the first movement. The second movement is a beautiful andante, very gentle and flowing in, in six eight. So kind of lilting, yum bum 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 bum. Again, we play it very classically. The third movement is a great dark uh, G minor. You know, the home key of the, of the symphony, kind of a, a dark, brooding, but, uh, but thrilling uh, minuet with a, a, a charming, very major, very sunny trio in the middle. And the last movement is a very dramatic, uh, electrifying movement, allegro assai, very, very fast. Beautiful four-movement symphony, one of the great works of the high classical period near the end of Mozart's life, the symphony number no. 40 in G minor. It's now performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The second half of our program featured two rather significant and sizable works. First, Michael Torkey's brand new composition, commissioned by the Albany Symphony, Concertino. 
Uh, and this work is actually, in a certain way, kind of three works in one. In the last couple of years, uh, the Albany Symphony and I have commissioned new concerto-type works from Michael Torkey, mainly because I've always felt that even though he has a very large body of works, he has virtually no or almost no uh, works for solo instrument and orchestra. There's a, a saxophone concerto that we actually uh, recorded about 20 years ago. But other than that, there's virtually no other work in Michael's oeuvre for uh, solo instrument and uh, and orchestra. And so I've sort of set about single-handedly to try to correct that. So a few years ago, we commissioned a cello concerto called Winter's Tale. And then last year, a fabulous kind of super Gershwin-like piano concerto, Three Manhattan Bridges. And we recorded both those pieces and recently released them on the Albany Records label. And they've gotten a lot of play and a lot of wonderful attention. And we're, we're very proud to have put those out. But I wanted to continue on this uh, track of, of encouraging Michael to create new works for solo instruments. And I knew that Michael had started life not only as a brilliant pianist, but also as a, as a bassoonist, and that he has a great love for uh, woodwind instruments. And uh, I also, I guess, had been doing some Baroque concertos uh, a couple of years ago when I conceived this idea, and, and was so struck, as always, by how incredibly complete these Baroque concerti can be. When you think of a Vivaldi concerto, which usually lasts about nine or ten minutes maximum and is almost invariably in three movements, a fast, slow, fast sort of structure, uh, even thinking of the, the four seasons, you know, which is, as you probably know are, are four different ten-minute concerti, it's amazing how in each of those those seasons Vivaldi can say such a, a complete things and can make such a, a fabulously compelling, complete work. So I sort of threw down the gauntlet and challenged Michael to write little 10-minute mini concerti, or as we call them, concertinos or concertinos, and invited him to pick whichever wind instruments he wanted to feature. And I said, why don't you write three of them? And, and, and then it was really his idea to put them together in a set and make it one larger piece. So in essence, it's like three little pieces inside of one larger piece. And he selected uh, first the bassoon, and then the oboe, and then the clarinet. And so he wrote three three movement little concertos, so a total of nine movements, one for each of those instruments, starting with the bassoon, going through the oboe, and ending with the clarinet. And he really liked this idea of putting them together in one larger piece as to what kind of life they'll have subsequent to our performances. And, and we did record the piece and we'll release a recording of it in the next couple of years. My guess is that they may have more of a life as individual pieces. And, you know, when a, an, a clarinetist plays the Mozart clarinet concerto with an orchestra, he or she may elect to also, on the other half of the program, add this wonderful contemporary 10-minute piece. That was kind of my, my hope. But what was wonderful was, was Michael was delighted to undertake this challenge and actually sort of welcomes lots of parameters. Like when you tell him it has to be not longer than 10 minutes, and it has to be in three movements, and it has to be for the clarinet, and it should somehow echo back or, or refer back to the Baroque concerto, he really loved those kinds of parameters because that gave him, in essence, almost more impetus for, for thinking about how he'd want to create these pieces. Not surprisingly, they didn't come out sounding at all like Vivaldi. I mean, I think there's a fair amount of Bach in them because Michael just loves Bach's music. And I think there is this kind of contrapuntal element, this uh, running melody lines against each other that, that's very much part of Baroque practice and also part of the sort of minimalist school that Michael's music grows out of. Michael's sort of considered what's called a post-minimalist composer, so his, his music is not as repetitive or, or rigorous in structure as Steve Reich or Philip Glass, but I think that his sound world owes a certain amount to those composers, to those earlier composers. 
But he, he described these pieces as sort of Bach meets Ravel. Michael's very connected to the, the French school and a huge, fanatical, passionate lover of Ravel's music. And so, in a way, I think you can hear in each of these pieces that there is this kind of connection between French Impressionism and the, the sort of rigor of, of Baroque classicism. But what Michael did, not surprisingly, is try to really differentiate uh, the three different three-movement parts of this larger nine-movement piece uh, so that they really really each each three movement in internal work really reflected the sound capabilities the technical challenges the things that those instruments do the best so the first part of the piece the first third is called west he gave directional uh, names to these pieces it's called west for bassoon and orchestra chamber orchestra we're using really a, a baroque sized orchestra as well a sort of vivaldi orchestra with the addition of one percussion and maybe one or two additional instruments that vivaldi wouldn't have had in the brass so west begins and it's got three movements Lively, Andantino, and Brillante. Brilliant. And uh, you'll hear from the very beginning, it, it, it features very broad jumps and leaps and this wonderful sort of exploration of the, the incredible uh, breadth of the tessitura, of the range of the bassoon, something that bassoons do very idiomatically and, and kind of effortlessly. Although the writing in the last movement is incredibly challenging, very, very virtuosic. So the first movement, West, features the bassoon and all the, the things that bassoons do best. The second third of the piece is called South, and it's for oboe and orchestra. And here, uh, I think because Michael just thinks of the oboe as this incredibly lush, gorgeous instrument that, that plays legato long lines quite, quite beautifully, it's certainly the most lyrical and, dare I say, expressive part of the piece. Again, in Three movements, lyrical, languorous, and animato. And these are some very, very beautiful, just lyrical kinds of movements. And then that leads to the final third of the piece, East uh, for clarinet and small chamber orchestra. And here, you know, the clarinet is such a, a hyper virtuoso instrument capable of playing, you know, a bazillion notes per minute and has this incredible ability to, to play arpeggios, you know, chords that go up and down the register sort of effortlessly in a way that, that the double uh, reed instruments, the oboe and the bassoon, really just, they just can't move quite as fast as the clarinet. So Michael really exploits that and, and writes a very French-sounding piece that makes incredible good use of the, the unbelievable dexterity and, and flowing virtuosity of the clarinet. Uh, and that movement is, of course, called, that set of movements is actually called East. And so here it is, the complete work by Michael Torquay, concertino in three parts. Each section features a brilliant young wind soloist who either is currently at the Juilliard School or is a recent graduate of the Juilliard School. The first part of the piece, West, in three movements, uh, features uh, bassoonist Dylan Meacham, who just graduated from Juilliard and is now pursuing a, a graduate degree at, at the Yale School of Music. The second third of the piece, South, for oboe and orchestra, features Ryan Roberts, who currently, I believe, is a junior at the Juilliard School. And the last third, East features a fairly recent graduate of the Juilliard School, Wei Zhang Wang, who is actually the, um, a member of the Albany Symphony for the last two years, one of our most beloved, or maybe even three years, one of our most beloved wind players in, in the section, and uh, is actually a second clarinet, but is currently uh, sitting in on the first clarinet. And so we're delighted that, that Wei is able to play the, the final third of this piece. So three brilliant young soloists in the world premiere of Michael Torquay's brand new multi-instrument, multi-concerto for three solo instruments and chamber orchestra concertino. 
This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Next on the program, and the final work on our program, is one of my absolute favorite Bach cantatas. As you know, there are many hundreds of these works. Bach wrote at least one a week for much of his adult life. This happens to be cantata number 78, but it's a a particularly celebrated one. It's Jesu, der du meine Seele. Uh, Jesus, you who my soul saved from the fiery furnace of hell, etc., etc. And it's just a, a magnificent cantata. As with all of the, or virtually all of the, the Bach cantatas, it ends with a, a chorale, which I assume would have been sung not just by the chorus or the, the assembled singers and, and orchestra, but also by the, the congregation in the church at which it was probably premiered. Uh, and it begins, this is one of the choral cantatas, it begins with an incredibly sort of epic chorus all about Jesus sort of undertaking or, or taking on all of my suffering and all of my sins. It's an incredible opening movement, and uh, because it's built on a on a four-bar chacon or a, a repeating uh, bass line that just goes over and over again, I think about 24 or maybe 27 times, and Bach builds essentially these incredible little variations on top of it, so you never have the sense that, that there's a sameness to it. In fact, what's so striking about it is how incredibly varied the music that, that Bach creates over this, this so-called ground or this bass becomes. Very powerful, dark, and beautiful uh, opening chorus. We were, we were particularly proud to feature a group with which we'd never worked before, the Schenectady County Community College Chorus, Yiping Wu. Uh, it's a, a great small chorus because we were doing this with a very small chamber orchestra, about 20 singers, and we had a wonderful time working with them, and they did a, a wonderful job with us. That being the first movement of the piece, then is the only time we hear the chorus for about five minutes, and then for the rest of the the cantata, it features different solo and and duo singers, and the chorus only returns at the very end for the very brief final chorale statement of the the chorus. And what's also intriguing about this opening chorale is that the chorale theme of the of the cantata is actually embedded in the soprano line. So even though you may not notice it at first, every time the, the high voices come in, they're actually singing another four bars of the final cantata. So it gives you this kind of teleological sense of you, you already are hearing the music that's going to end the piece uh, at the very beginning. It's a, a wonderful, very intriguing thing that, that Bach and, and other writers of cantatas in the period would sometimes deploy. That's followed by one of the most beautiful duets in all of Bach's output. Uh, it, it's a gorgeous song, essentially, for, for two solo female voices, a, a high soprano and, and a high mezzo. It's called Wir eilen mit schwachen, doch emsigen Schritten. We hurry with a weak but excited steps. So we, we rush toward you, our Savior, sort of tentatively, but with great excitement. And it's just the most magnificent uh, duet, a very joyful, a real contrast to that dark, brooding first chorus of, of the piece. 
That's then followed by a scene for the tenor, quite an extensive scene, starting with a, a very dark, uh, sort of desperate restative, in this case accompanied just by the, the, the continuo instruments, because it was a church piece, it's not a harpsichord, it's an, a small organ, as well as cello and a bassoon. Uh, so, and, and this uh, little scene for the tenor starts, Ach, ich bin der Kind der Sünden. Oh, I, I am a child of sin. And it's all about how I've strayed and how terrible life has been and how I have to look to you, God, for, for salvation. And it's followed by a, a wonderful uh, aria, solo aria for the tenor that features an extremely uh, prominent and, and, and charming flute solo. Uh, the blood that cancels out my guilt. What I find so striking and, and singular in these Bach cantatas is the way Bach can entirely change the sound world of the piece in an instant just by deploying a flute instead of an oboe or an oboe instead of a flute or two solo singers and how he's using what to us in the modern era would consider extraordinarily minimal forces. It's a little string orchestra with an organ, two oboes, a bassoon, and some singers, and yet he can create this incredibly varied palette, this whole set of extremely varied sound worlds within the body of this 23-minute cantata that uh, really doesn't um, have that many different forces to, to deploy. It's just incredible the variety that Bach can create. And I think that's a real inspiration to composers like Michael Torkey to see how much Bach can do with such minimal forces. That then leads to the, the final section of the solo part of the, the cantata, a set piece for the, the baritone or, or bass baritone. And he also starts with a restative, restative being a sort of sung spoken section, usually before an aria, before the song, uh, that's usually accompanied just by the, the, Continual by the organ and the, the cello and the bassoon. In this case, this is what's called an accompanied recitative, a recitativo accompagnato, uh, in which the strings also play and support this kind of sung spoken discussion of the baritone. And finally, thank goodness, uh, after all this dark stuff that the tenor and the chorus have sung, the baritone sort of sheds light on how Christ's salvation is, 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 is possible. But he starts with this recitative, uh, Die Wunden Nägel, Kron und Grab. The wounds, nails, crown, and grave, the blows that were given to my Savior are now signs of his victory. So he sort of turns it to the, the victory of, of God. And then that leads into a, a wonderful solo aria uh, featuring very prominently this, the solo oboe. Nun du wirst mein Gewissen stillen. Now you will calm my conscience that against me for vengeance cries. So it's all about how believing in, in God will sort of save me from all these dark forces. And so the, the cantata, as so many of these cantatas, goes really from darkness and from despair into light and hope. Uh, and then the final chorale is this beautiful, um, Herr, ich glaube, hilf mir schwachen. Lord, I believe, help me in my weakness. Let me not despair. You, you can make me stronger when sin and death assail me. And it ends with this beautiful kind of final, the German is itself so beautiful, Herr Jesu nach dem Streit in der süßen Ewigkeit. Uh, Lord Jesus, after the battle, uh, I will behold you in sweet eternity. So here now, uh, one of the greatest of all the Bach cantatas, cantata number 78, Jesu der du meine Seele, our solo artists are all members of the Bard College Conservatory graduate program in vocal arts performance that's uh, led by Don Upshaw. They are Catherine Rossiter, soprano, Kelly Newbery, mezzo-soprano, Olivier Gagnon, tenor, and Rolf Dows, baritone.
They're joined also by our, our good friends from the Schenectady County Community College Chorus, Yiping Wu Director, singing that opening chorus and the final chorale as well. Here now, Bach's Cantata Number 78, Jesu der Du Meine Seele, featuring the Albany Symphony conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.